When was the last time you saw a primary care provider? One in five U.S. residents has no usual source of health care, and that means they usually end up in the emergency department. What are the policy solutions for fixing these unhealthy and costly habits? We all want better health, and we have feel a sense of urgency about it. We need it now. Our guest today is at the center of efforts to promote better health now by investing in person-centered, accessible, and equitable primary care. Ann Griner is the CEO of the Primary Care Collaborative. Invest in what works, and we have this incredible evidence base that primary care is the one part of our healthcare system. If we put more money into it, it will deliver better patient uh, population outcomes and more equity. Pay for what we want, better health. Um, and also, we need to reduce economic and social barriers to better health, because if we don't do that, not all Americans are going to achieve better health. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Anne, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. I have an obligation to say that we have a bias here, but I think our listeners know that we are primary care folks and this is an important issue to us. But more importantly, it's an important issue for all Americans. Uh, the primary care uh, collaborative members include both public and private organizations, and the stat really uh, sticks out. Our country devotes just 5 to 7% of healthcare spending to primary care, considerably less than those other high-income countries with better health outcomes. And can you tell our listeners how, we, how did we get here? Mm. Well, um, I do want to even update um, the latest stat. We're at 4.6%, so oh. less than five cents on a dollar. Um, and I think there are many um, contributors to how we got here, but one um, is the Medicare physician fee schedule and what it values. And uh, many other payers um, kind of take off on that fee schedule. And we're not valuing things that are more of the cognitive services, valuing um, advice that primary care clinicians give related to managing multiple chronic conditions, care integration and care coordination. Those are things that are not valued while we pay a lot more um, for uh, surgical interventions and drugs and many other things, but not so much um, on uh, things that help keep us well or restore us quickly to health when we, we get sick. Well, and we know that primary care uh, through an abundance of research consistently delivers better outcomes and reduces disparities. And that was highlighted, of course, in the report from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. But one of the things we see, and this was just confirmed with yet another national study, is compensation for primary care physicians in particular, probably for everybody on the primary care team, but particularly for physicians, is lagging behind their specialist colleagues uh, in medicine. But I think the question is, is raising salaries for primary care physicians enough to fix the issue of what a small percentage of physicians are actually choosing primary care? Or are there a host of other critical factors, in your opinion? Um, well, that is an important issue because I think when people um, come to make a decision about what specialty they'll, they're going to pursue and they have a lot of medical debt, 
you know, it, it gives them pause uh, to pursue primary care. And that's unfortunate because it's exactly uh, what we need in our healthcare system. But there are many, many other um, factors. Um, you know, uh, primary care is not um, properly resourced beyond the salaries to actually provide what patients need in terms of more comprehensive care. We know that we have a mental health crisis, for example, but we don't have a financing system that supports the integration of mental health into primary care, which is what patients want. Or we don't have the ability to um, uh, address um, uh, uh, substance use disorder, which is also something that many Americans um, are struggling with. We uh, do not have the ability to really have the sort of comprehensive team that can help patients handle diabetes and hypertension and congestive heart failure. Many things that um, accompany those chronic conditions require patients to change what they eat and how they exercise. And a more comprehensive team could actually help patients um, do better. But that's not what our current financing allows for. So I think that there are a host of reasons that contribute um, uh, to the uh, lack of investment in primary care and, and um, are problematic beyond what we pay in terms of physician salaries. And let me let me just say that I think that's such a good uh, such an important point about team based care. Obviously, we're from the community health center movement where that is a focus of the work that we do. It's, it's so important. And we've also want to find out what uh, brings people joy uh, in terms of the work that they do. And what we found is that uh, nurse practitioners are uh, an area that we've been really focusing on the development. But before we get to talking about sort of how all this is organized, I want to really get back to the heart of the dilemma that you face. and. Uh, Maybe an example of when Medicare boosted payments to doctors uh, who evaluate and manage patients and cut payments to those who focus on procedures, those doctors getting less money put up a fight. You have a very diverse coalition, but not groups like the American College of Surgeons and the hospitals. How do you cross the finish line in this very intense environment with the group that you've organized? Well, we, we um, just as we... Uh are advocating for a team to provide a comprehensive set of services. We also do quote unquote team-based advocacy for primary care. And um, we partner with um, uh, other folks like uh, insurance companies and employers and consumer groups and other stakeholders that also want better health um, and are very focused on that. And that, um, uh, allows us uh, to move policies forward. For example, we have proposed to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services a new payment model for primary care within the Medicare uh, Accountable Care Organization, uh, the MSSP program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we brought 30 organizations together and they were very diverse and said, please, we want a new way to pay primary care and we want to invest more through this alternative payment model within 
the ACO program, um, they took notice when three different organizations came and put a proposal on the table. And we're um, hopeful that that model gets introduced this year. So that's how we work. We, we look uh, to partner with other stakeholders that um, share uh, uh, the sense that in order to improve the nation's health, we have to um, pay more attention and spend more on prevention and wellness. Well, Anne, I understand you also are an advocate of hybrid payment methods with a mix of prospective and fee-for-service payment. I'd, I'd love to have you share your thoughts on how this solves uh, issues potentially, and also maybe distinguish between the difference between a prospective reliable payment and the value-based rewards or share savings that may come or may not come uh, at the end of a year. I think there's a lot of confusion out there beyond the healthcare circles of what we're talking about when we talk about these things. Yeah. Well, Margaret, thanks so much for that question. And, um, you know, when I came to the Primary Care Collaborative, um, I came from the quality movement and I was excited about the patient-centered medical home and what it, it promised. But I've turned into someone who's really focused on payment because I don't think that we can um, adequately achieve those new models of care unless we fix payment. Um, so back back to payment. Um, you know, I think that the the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, which you mentioned previously, gave us um, a set of incredible recommendations in five different domains, and one of them is payment. Mm -hmm. And um, when we had a meeting shortly after the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine published their report and found that you know, uh, this notion of hybrid payment was something that um, uh, uh, experts and stakeholders across the spectrum supported. We decided that we would make that um, a blueprint for our work. And hybrid payment is a mix of fee-for-service and prospective payment or capitation. And it's a mix because, um, you know, no payment system uh, is perfect. And there are there are benefits and challenges with each. And so the notion of hybrid is to kind of balance those out. Um, and for example, with fee for service, to pay for things that you want to make sure happen. Um, uh, and that might not be done by all practitioners. Um, the capitated payment is for, it could be 40 to 70% perhaps of your, um, your payment comes in a monthly payment that you can anticipate uh, and you manage against for your patient population. And it allows the primary care clinician to be much more flexible in how they deliver care um, and to either expand or, you know, kind of um, contract in terms of the uh, amount of care, depending upon what the patient needs. So rather than, you know, uh, being tied to a visit, you have this monthly payment that would come in and you manage, you manage against. So it, you know, it is, um, I think, you know, on the surface might seem a little bit complicated, but we've seen examples of how this works well. Um, and we put a lot of stock in the evidence that um, the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine brought together and in their recommendations.
You know, when I think about payment, I think about investment. And uh, there's no greater advocate for investment than the uh, bipartisan Senate bill, the $26 billion bipartisan uh, legislation uh, that would boost our primary care, uh, increase training opportunities for doctors and nurses and uh, other providers, and, uh, and expand access to community health centers. Uh, I know you've been tracking that bill. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts about it? And uh, uh, will it see the light of day or parts of it? Well, I think we're all waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, as we were on a, uh, had a meeting this morning with uh, folks on the Senate side, and they reminded us that it's hard for them to think about the year ahead because last year's business is not yet that's done. Right. Right. And that's obviously part of last year's business. And we're all anxious um, and hopeful that this gets over the goal line by March 8th. Um, uh, you know, I think... Um, uh, that bill is very important, um, and it certainly um, addresses a number of issues, as you said, um, funding for community health centers and also for for um, for training. Very important. And um, Congress's job, I would assert, is not done after, you know, uh, and hopefully that bill gets over the goal line because, um, well, uh, community health centers serve a very important population part of the population, one in 11, and some of the most vulnerable. Um, there's other things that Congress needs to focus on in terms of primary care for the other 10 and 11. And so we're hopeful, um, and we are having numerous conversations that Congress will also begin to turn their lens uh, and, and open the aperture to look at primary care more broadly. Lift up CHCs and think about primary care more broadly so that we can advance the health of all Americans. Well, Anne, in your advocacy, you often refer to the patient-centered medical home, uh, a term that I think has probably been around long enough that most of our audience understands what it means. But I wonder if you could uh, define it for us. Um, and also how it fits into your mission. Um, and, you know, I, I think I might just add a third to that. This is one of those things that uh, really has found resonance in the private practice community, in veteran affairs, the Joint Commission, community health centers. When you see that kind of widespread adoption, that usually says something. But do you think it's made a difference? Has it helped us get back to that uh, ideal of the truly patient-centered patient uh, health home or medical home for patients? I think that it has, and I know um, it's really helped to orient primary care practices to focus on providing care, thinking more in a population um, basis. So, you know, proactively understanding who's in your population in terms of who has diabetes or asthma or congestive heart failure and proactively reaching out to make sure that they're getting the services they need, providing really good access, using technology um, to support care. And I know that um, in the community health center movement, there's been really fantastic adoption of the patient-centered medical home. And as you said, in the VA, um, uh, the commercial sector to some extent, um, but I think um, the financing model has not supported the full uh, blown 
uh, patient-centered medical home as we had hoped for um, in the in the in the private sector. And so, this is where we need payment reform uh, to be able to support the patient-centered medical home and other models of advanced primary care, which I would assert are really you know cousins and. Um, mothers and fathers of the patient-centered <laughs> medical home. They're, they're variants, but it's all very much in line with uh, a more population-based approach, using technology, much better access, and it doesn't need to be a physical home. Let's just be clear on that. I think we can take good advantage of virtual visits, uh, patient portals, um, all kinds of ways to have touches with your patient that um, you know supports them in their in their care journey, and also provides them a home where your data is in one place, where you can um, uh, get the integration and coordination across different conditions that you might have. Well, if we couldn't agree with you more about the uh, the lessons, you know, that we had to learn about the full integration of behavioral health uh, and primary care, and of course, oral health. While we're at it in the community health center world, and all all lessons that can be adopted by primary care in any system, uh, but you know, we can't overlook the power of the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services and their influence, and certainly through uh, billing codes. And you've been touting the importance of a proposed. CMS uh, add-on code that is intended to provide patients and their primary care providers more time together to manage complex conditions. Where do things stand uh, on this front? What was the origin of this? And are you optimistic about seeing that come to fruition? Sounds like a wonderful idea from the point of view of anyone who cares for patients with complex conditions. Well, um, it is. And um, the, the code is um, uh, G2211. Um, and it's a very important way that um, primary care can get, you know, uh, can be resourced for the care that it provides to those who have very complex needs. So I think it is really important. Um, we, uh, uh, the final rule came out at the end of the year. There has been and efforts um, to try to overturn it. Um, and I think those continue. We, we are hopeful that um, uh, those will not be successful, frankly. Um, and we'll know, you know, in the end of end of you know the package when it when it emerges. Um, but I think there's growing recognition that um, uh, our healthcare system is not doing a good job taking care of patients with complex needs. We see that in our life expectancy um, data um, and, and in our understanding of the uh, you know number of chronic conditions um, we see expanding in terms of that Americans are facing. And so, um, you know, we have a system that I think um, uh, does not support the, that you know, integration and coordination. And so patients are left kind of being their own general contractors, going to this specialist and that specialist and themselves trying to figure out how to integrate and coordinate the various advice they're they're receiving. They really want a partner to help them. Um, it's complicated. Uh, and we have a very um, chaotic healthcare system. And so what I think we need to do is really strengthen that foundation so that primary care um, can support patients in these in this journey, uh, which is often um, 
you know, fairly challenging, particularly if you have two, three or more chronic conditions. And unfortunately, more Americans are in that situation. And speaking of situations Americans are in, and you talked earlier about virtual homes, uh, health homes, and uh, uh, with the mental health crisis, we're, we're seeing a, a larger uptick of uh, the use of telehealth. I know that was one of the sort of uh, silver linings, if you will, during the pandemic. It allowed people to really explore an area that had really been limited. Uh, but, you know, there are some fixes that need to be made, and you're calling on Medicare to remove its initial in-person requirement necessary to trigger payments for telemental health services. And uh, can you explain what the holdup is? And it, it seems like a very practical solution. And I will certainly say for so many working families who are working hourly, the notion that you have to take an hour bus ride to get to a place to wait a half an hour to be seen for 15 minutes and then repeat it uh, sort of suggests that people aren't really listening or understanding the practical reality that so many people face. Yeah. I think it might, um, its origins might be really a, around this notion of you can, you really need to establish first a relationship in person. Um, you know, and I think the, these last number of years have um, demonstrated to us that um, you can establish relationships um, over Zoom. Um, and, and um, you know, given the shortage of mental health professionals and also, as you pointed out, um, you know, how time uh, intensive it is to, you know, travel places, particularly if you're in a rural community mm -hmm. um, or you don't have access to transportation to get, you know, wherever you need to go to um, have that visit. We just think that we can be uh, more flexible um, and, um, you know, move that forward. Interestingly, um, we had conversations with some leading consumer groups um, and um, they evolved their position in conversation with us. So we're appreciative of that and, and hopeful that this, you know, uh, this policy will evolve. Well, Anne, I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit more about uh, the kind of system in which you get your care and, and what difference does it make. So there's uh, some evidence, I think, uh, that shows that uh, accountable care organizations uh, can be helpful in terms of improving care and being attendant uh, to the cost issues. There is some further evidence uh, that when those uh, ACOs are led by clinicians, and I think most of them have studied uh, physicians and leadership, that you may do better than in organizations that are not led uh, by the clinical uh, uh, experts. Um, and then there's maybe more newsworthy stories than I've seen in the uh, peer-reviewed literature about what's the impact of who owns the whole health system. Uh, if you look at venture-influenced uh, health systems. And some of this we're reading in, in the academic literature, but mostly we're reading that, I would say, in the, uh, in the news. What are you doing in your organization around looking at this uh, influence on uh, cost and outcomes and the patient-centeredness of who owns the operation? And what's its primary, primary focus? Is it primary care or is it healthcare writ large? You want to try and tackle that one? I know it's a long <laughs> question. <laughs> well, um, I do think governance is really important. Um, and I think that that's something um, to understand. Who is making the decisions, um, you know, that affect um, the clinical enterprise? And, um, 
you know, are those being made by clinicians um, and are they shaping them or is that, are those business decisions? And I think that's a real question because as a patient, um, I really want, you know, clinicians to have a lot of influence um, over that, over, over those set of decisions. So, you know, whatever the financing is, I think the governance is really important to look at. Um, I do think that um, the data that we have from uh, MSSP, which is the Medicare ACO, is really quite interesting mm -hmm. that um, those that are primary care centric are achieving twice the savings of those that are not. And I think what it begins to raise for us is, you know, well, why, why is that? Um, uh, I do think, you know, it's part of the, um, the governance, as I mentioned earlier, but also the alignment of incentives. You know, yeah. if you have um, uh, an incentive system that um, is thinking not only about um, prevention, but also has at the same time has to think about, you know, are all of our beds filled? Those are, mm -hmm. you know, two different, two different incentive systems. And, you know, they may be canceling each other out, um, you know, with, with some of the um, hospital led um, ACOs. Now there are hospitals that are really um, population focused and are committed to primary care and have a different approach. But I think th these are all, um, uh, trends that we're watching and trying to understand. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot going on um, and disentangling what's happening is, is, is a complex business. But when we can point to the data, I think we really, um, and see that over time, it's not just one year. Um, I think we really need to, to pay attention to that. Well, I think it's such a good point. I'm wondering if there's any scorecard. I'm sitting here as a consumer, seeing lots of mergers going on with hospitals. Seems like it's a sucking sound of taking away primary care dollars ultimately across the board because there's just a large uh, health industrial complex here uh, that doesn't seem to be slowing down. Uh, that's a pretty big fight that you've got on your hands. Uh, and how are you able to educate the average citizen about this? And I know you're focused in on the policy and doing such a great job, but what's, what are some guideposts for simple consumer out there trying to figure out uh, these large mergers and is it, it, the, what does it mean for me? Yeah. Well, the economists will tell you that when you have um, consolidation of of hospitals in a market that prices go up. So that's not great for consumers. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that that when you have um, so, you know, I think that is that is problematic, um, you know, what happens for consumers when primary care um, is now a part of a hospital system. You know, I think that's an open question and you need to kind of examine that. Do I still have the same amount of time with my primary care clinician as I once had? Um, where are they referring me um, in terms of, you know, specialty services or acute care services? Is it within that hospital metric, uh, network or do they consider, you know, other specialists or other hospitals that might be able to meet my needs. So the, as a patient, you might 
ask those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think um, the administration is also examining these kinds of issues around consolidation and competition. Um, uh, do we have less competition? And so that means with consolidation, and that means prices are going to go up and that's not good for consumers. These are all, you know, very important questions for us to be watching, um, but not to just watch forever. Um, if we see in markets that consolidation is not turning out to be good for consumers, then, you know, I think the, uh, the regulators and others uh, should be concerned and, and take action. Ann Greiner, CEO of the Primary Care Collaborative, we want to thank you for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. And thanks to our audience for being here. Be sure to subscribe to our videos on YouTube. Find us on Facebook and X with our account name, CHC Radio. As always, you can go online to chcradio.com to sign up for our updates. And please share your thoughts and your comments about this program with us. And thank you so much again for joining us today. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm a big fan of your program. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.